Section 20 of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 12. Raleigh's Trial at Winchester, Part 1. As the plague was at that time raging in London, it was determined that the trial of the conspirators should be conducted at Winchester. On the 12th of November, Raleigh was brought out of the tower to be taken to Winchester under the charge of Wad, lieutenant of the tower. So great was Raleigh's unpopularity amongst the citizens that he was greeted as he passed through the streets by the execrations of the mob. It was Hob or Nob, Wad told Cecil, whether or not Raleigh should have been brought alive through such multitudes of unruly people as did exclaim against him. If one hare-brained fellow amongst the multitudes had begun to set upon him, as they were very near to do it, no entreaty or means could have prevailed. The fury and tumult of the people was so great. We shall see that in the end Raleigh's misfortunes taught the people to know him as he really was, and to reverence him in the days of his fall as much as they had hated him in the days of his prosperity. On the 17th of November, Raleigh was placed at the bar of Winchester on a charge of high treason. The trial was conducted before a special commission in which sat amongst others Lord Henry Howard, Cecil, and some other lords, Chief Justice Popham, and three other judges. The prosecution was in the hands of Sir Edward Cook as Attorney General. He behaved throughout the trial with great asperity and violence to Raleigh, so much so that he called upon himself the censure even of Cecil. The trial throughout was conducted in a manner which would now seem utterly unjust. At the present day in a criminal trial, the accused is considered innocent until he is proved guilty, and he is allowed to choose able counsel to defend him from the accusations brought against him. At that time, things were very different. The burden of the proof lay with the accused. He was all along considered guilty unless he could prove himself innocent, and he was allowed no counsel, but was obliged to answer himself without any preparation the charges brought against him. Sir Walter pleaded not guilty. He was asked whether he wished to challenge any of the jury and answered, I know none of them, but think them all honest and Christian men. I know my own innocency, and therefore will challenge none. All are indifferent to me. Only this I desire. Sickness has of late weakened me, and my memory was always bad. The points in the indictment are many, and perhaps in the evidence more will be urged. I beseech you, therefore, my lords, let me answer the points severally as they are delivered, for I shall not carry them all in my mind to the end. Cook tried to make objections to this request, but he was partially overruled by the commissioners. After a few preliminary proceedings, Cook proceeded to make a long and violent speech, in which he summed up the charges against Raleigh. But he introduced, besides, all sorts of matters relative only to the surprising treason as it was called, of Watson and Markham, which had nothing to do with the accusations against Raleigh. He was several times interrupted by Raleigh, who asked how he was affected by all this, and at last Raleigh exclaimed, Your words cannot condemn me, my innocency is my defense. Prove against me any one thing of the many that you have broken, and I will confess all the indictment, and that I am the most horrible traitor that ever lived, and worthy to be crucified with a thousand torments. 
Then Cook rejoined furiously, Nay, I will prove all. Thou art a monster. Thou hast an English face, but a Spanish heart. You would have stirred England and Scotland both. You incited the Lord Cobham as soon as Count Ehrenberg came into England to go to him. The night he went, you supped with Lord Cobham, and he brought you after supper to Durham House, and then the same night by a back way went with Renzi to Count Arenberg, and got from him a promise of the money. After this it was arranged that the Lord Cobham should go to Spain, and return by Jersey, where you were to meet him to consult about the distribution of the money, because Cobham had not so much policy or wickedness as you. Your intent was to set up the Lady Arabella as titular queen, and to depose our present rightful king, the lineal descendant of Edward IV. You pretend that this money was to forward the peace with Spain. Your jargon was peace, which meant Spanish invasion and Scottish subversion. When Cook proceeded to dwell on Cobham's treason, Raleigh interposed, What is that to me? I do not hear yet that you have spoken one word against me. There is no treason of mine done. If my lord Cobham be a traitor, what is that to me? Then Cook broke out, All that he did was by thy instigation, thou viper, and I will prove thee the rankest traitor in all England. This was more than Raleigh could stand. No, no, master attorney, he replied, I am no traitor. Whether I live or die, I shall stand as true a subject as ever the king hath. You may call me a traitor at your pleasure, yet it becomes not a man of quality or virtue to do so. But I take comfort in it. It is all you can do, for I do not yet hear that you charge me with any treason. After this, Cook proceeded to bring forward his proofs, which were chiefly the results of Cobham's examination. Raleigh, in his answer, confessed that he had long suspected Cobham of dealings with Aremberg, but he went on to show how utterly unlikely it was that he should have shared in Cobham's plotting. It is very strange, he said, that I at this time should be thought to plot with the Lord Cobham, knowing him a man that had neither love nor following, and myself at this time having resigned a place of my best command in an office I had in Cornwall. I was not so bare of sense, but I saw that if ever this state was strong, it was now that we have the kingdom of Scotland united, whence we were wont to fear all our troubles, Ireland quieted, where our forces were wont to be divided, Denmark assured, whom before we were always wont to have in jealousy, the low countries our nearest neighbor, and instead of a lady whom time had surprised, we had now an active king, who would be present at his own businesses. For me at this time, to make myself a Robin Hood, a Watt Tyler, a Ket, or a Jack Cade, I was not so mad. I knew the state of Spain well, his weakness, his poorness, his humbleness at this time. I knew that six times we had repulsed his forces, thrice in Ireland, thrice at sea, once upon our coast, and twice upon his own. Thrice had I served against him myself at sea, wherein, for my country's sake, I had expended of my property forty thousand marks. I knew that when before time he was wont to have forty great sails at the least in his ports, now he hath not passed six or seven, and for sending to his Indies he was driven to have strange vessels, a thing contrary to the institutions of his ancestors, who straightly forbade that even in the case of necessity 
they should make their necessity known to strangers. I knew that of twenty-five millions which he had from his Indies, he had scarcely any left. Nay, I knew his poorness to be such at this time as that the Jesuits, his imps, begged at his church doors. I knew his pride so abated that notwithstanding his former high terms, he was become glad to congratulate his majesty and send unto him. Whoso knew what great assurances he stood upon with other states for smaller sums, would not think he would so freely disperse to my lord Cobham six hundred thousand crowns, and to show I am not Spanish, as you term me. At this time I had writ a treatise to the king's majesty of the present state of Spain, and reasons against the peace. For my inwardness with the Lord Cobham it was only in matters of private estate, wherein he communicating oft with me, I lent him my best advice. In these eloquent terms Raleigh described the condition of Spain and his indignation that any one should think that he could have changed his lifelong hatred of the Spaniard for traitorous negotiations with him. His words are said to have produced a great effect upon the listeners, who had all come there deeply prejudiced against him. Cook merely repeated his accusations. Then Raleigh demanded to have Cobham brought, that he might speak face to face. Referring to past statutes and even to canon law, he demonstrated that there must be at least two witnesses to prove a man guilty of treason, and concluded by again begging that Cobham might be sent for. The lawyers denied that he had any right to demand witnesses to prove his treason, and Cook went on with his proofs. Portions of the confessions of the conspirators in the surprising plot were read, all pointing vaguely to Raleigh's supposed connection with Cobham. Raleigh continued to press that Cobham should be brought, and Cecil seems to have been anxious that this should be done, if the law allowed it. In fact, all along Cecil seems to have wished to see Raleigh treated with justice, and given every chance of proving his innocence, though he himself was fully persuaded of his guilt. End of section 20